Oh, Jamie, you just need a friend. Let's do recording, please. Can you do my checks? Make sure your mic is good. I think it's good. Ooh, wow. Uh, I think so it's good. good. Let's keep diving. <laughs> Which we're live. Let's do it. What? Let's keep it in. You do it every time, and I'm shocked every time. We're doing it. Fuck. Can we like? Uh, can you explain to the crowd why we are talking about a well pee quiet or loud? Or maybe I should sing instead of just telling the fans about. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we're recording a day early. Thank you, Jamie, for accommodating, because I'm going out tomorrow to see our lady piece and to try to get into the zone of recording a day early. We watched and recorded in the same day, which is a lot and not how we usually do things. And those Sundays are usually your day off, so we didn't do those. And then you had to work. So Monday, today's Monday, we are doing both. And I know you're not a big fan of the Monday morning grind. Who is really? I'm not either. But like having to record on Monday night sucks. So to try to hype you up and me, we listened to some Our Lady Peace and did some virtual karaoke. Yeah. Which I might add was really fun. You were a little reluctant, but it was fun, no? I don't like singing in front of people because I can't really, when I get nervous, my voice clenches up. I mean, I can't sing either. I know, but you have swagger and confidence and you can sing because of that. I just don't care. It's like dancing, right? Like some people can't dance, but they're on the dance floor doing ridiculous stuff. And you're like, that's awesome. Hey, Tony, what happened to Superman? Superman's dead. Oh, shit, dude. Did you think I was going to bust it out? <laughs> yeah, I wanted you to bust out that song. I want you to bust it out. I love that. I want I want there to be like a, a new Superman film in which that song is the main theme. And then Henry Cavill comes back and he brings his Witcher chops. And he's led by like a talented director as opposed to a hack who plays with toys. Ooh. Yeah, to- Michael's going to hate me for that. He might even quit being our producer because I think <laughs> Zack Snyder's a hack Snyder. Hack Snyder! <laughs> he started, boys. Sorry. Jamie's come to play. Anyway, that Superman is dead and there should be a new one in which Our Lady Peace is responsible for the score and he Superman takes red kryptonite or something. And then he spends half the movie under the influence of green kryptonite too. So there's a disabled angle. And then we can discover, we can cover it on the podcast. Oh, that'd be amazing. Also, right from that theme, you can kind of infer what the whole tone of that movie would be. Yeah. That would be such a good, I love a dark, grounded superhero movie. Like the Dark Knight, where it doesn't ever really feel like a comic book. Yeah, I mean, it's that's uh, nowadays I think people are looking for more tra- like traditionally heroic stories because 
you know, life is kind of depressing. And so we need that, like, we, we probably need a Superman movie in which, like, Clark is emblematic of hope in some ways, sense or form. But can't you be that? And also, like, what about that new Batman movie? That was a very raw, weird. Did you see it? I did. I enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think was, we talked about it, actually. We might have talked about it a little bit, but it was a really modest film. And it was the first. It was the first Batman movie in which it felt like a genuine ensemble cast. Like yeah. it was, everyone was basically bringing their A game, and it was. It felt more like uh, Gotham was the the real character, which is such a well worn thing to say about a movie. But I think it did some really cool things, and it wasn't very egocentric, and and it sort of deflated. The idea that Bruce is the a righteous vigilante and he's always correct and everything. Exactly. I love when they humanize a, a villain and also humanize a hero. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love. I actually just rewatched Ray over the weekend with my parents. It's a a great film. It's so good because of that. Because like it's not glorifying. It's just humanizing. And so, yeah, I, I mean, obviously with Superman, you can't have a Superman movie without a guy that can fly and is bulletproof and is basically immortal. But you can still ground it enough, I think, that it could feel like a relatable story. Well, yeah, you could have a Superman that realizes that just because he's impervious doesn't mean that he's necessary in the right necessarily in the right all of the time yeah and and that a kind of like empirical physical power does not necessarily entail like a good kind of power or influence and i think i think henry cavill's actually super talented and i it took until the witcher for me to realize that so i would like for him to be able to play that role the way that he's fully able to all of that said i'm kind of over superhero movies too I completely, yeah. After me just extolling the virtues of several recent superhero films, I am. I don't really want to see another one. Like, I'd much rather just see a movie that does all those things well that isn't just a carbon copy of a comic book. For sure. Yeah. I I recently watched a film this weekend, actually. I took a break and watched The uh, Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent with Nicolas Cage. That's the one where he plays himself. Yeah, it, it's really good. It's a, yeah. it's like, it's a kind of a meta common comedy, but not, not in the sense that uh, it's exhausting or uh, frustrating. It's uh, much like Hot Fuzz or one of those Edgar Wright films that is sort of extremely self-aware of of genre convention. Is Nicolas Cage known to be self-aware? I think that he's known to have a high ceiling of talent to nonsense. So like he can he like a just, high ratio. Yeah, he's all over the place. And but but ultimately like when he wants to make a good film, like he's very 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 capable. Do you have to know a lot of Nicolas Cage references to get this movie? Cuz I don't even know how many Nicolas Cage movies I've seen. I think if you've seen uh, Con Air, Face Off, Matchstick Men. So far, no to all of those. Really? You haven't seen National Treasure? The I've seen National Treasure, yeah. Oh, that's the worst one to I have know. seen. Tony, you need to enhance your Nicolas Cage education. He feels like a bit of a meme. 
that that notwithstanding, like there is legitimate talent. I think if you were to watch Matchstick Men, you would really you would gain a respect for him. There's also another. If I were to only watch one new Nicolas Cage movie, Face Off. Yeah, yeah, it's a John Woo like totally over the top uh, action film from the late '90s, but it's there's something in uh, there's something enduring about it. What's Con Air? I feel like I was kind of hoping you'd say that. Oh, Snake Eyes is another one that's good. You should watch Snake Eyes. Yeah, but I have to pick one. Uh, shit, you can't you can't put this constraint upon me. Yes. Um. <laughs> yes. Okay. So, uh, Con Air, I believe he plays a a criminal who breaks out of a maximum security prison. See, I'm already invested. And yeah, and he has to like pull off a heist or something. Yeah, I can't remember that movie. movie I'm into. The over-the-top action movies is like, yeah, there's a time and a place where I'll be into that. But a good heist movie, I might watch oh, on air tomorrow. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. If you're going to watch a heist movie with Nicolas Cage, you watch Matchstick Man because he plays a con man and he's good in it. Oh, okay. Yeah, watch that. Watch that one. So, what is the value of Con Air? Con Air again. It speaks to a, a, a like an era of action film in the late '90s where Cage himself didn't really look like like the leading man in a muscle film, but because of his mania and his like sheer, you know, the pull that he has on in his films, he just brings this like absolutely bonkers energy to his movies you can tell he's kind of crazy but kind of brilliant in that crazy and these are all you know stereotypes that we throw at purportedly talented people but i think it is true of cage okay i'll watch one of those i would say and i this is uh biased and it's in order to manipulate you but i'll just say that up front he has a very very similar energy to jim carrey oh yeah you're definitely I don't like that. Even though you told me you were doing it, I still am mad at you for doing it. You can't do that. But that's but, unfair. But to everyone but involved, other film buffs who are listening right now who no. also have it. Let me finish the statement. I will fight any single one of them. <laughs> they will agree with no. me. It's true. It's not true. It's don't true. Never believe that. Cage, Cage is no, you know, Cage is if Jim I Carrey, refuse. if Jim Carrey were a little bit more drawn to action fair, he would be Nicolas Cage, and if Nicolas no. Cage were, yes, it's true. I refuse. You have to trust me. I don't. Oh my goodness, Tony. I'll watch. Okay, if you're gonna try to convince me of that point, which Nick Cage movie do I have to watch? Oh, this is fun. Face Off. You have to watch Face Off. Okay, that is the one you said first. I just, I already feel myself pulling back on Face no. Off. No, don't. It's awful, but it's so brilliant. Yeah, I'll have to be in the right mood for sure. And it's also, it's also John Travolta in one of his primes. Like Travolta also has a terrific charisma. Oh, if you were going to say Travolta also has Jim Carrey energy, no, I was about not. to stop this whole conversation. <laughs> you were about to conclude the episode? I was like, that's it. I'm going to write a piece tonight. <laughs> Preemptively. It's way outside. Um, Did you watch help. any other good movies? 
Oh, did I watch any other good movies? I've been, I finished Stranger Things season four. Yeah, I can't get into Stranger Things. I loved it. Well, I have to say, like, I think I was talking about how, I might even have been talking about it on the podcast about how, like, period TV shows bother me because they get heavily, heavily preoccupied with the aesthetic of the period that they're attempting to emulate rather than confining the characters to the to the social climate of the time. So yeah. it ends up being not necessarily a portal into the past, but rather the present moment borrowing heavily from the past in a superficial right. way. And so it 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 does bother me because it's like it's like again, like writers not having an imagination for what the Stranger Things would be like if it were set in the present moment, thinking that it would be less interesting to tell a story about kids who, for example, have access to the internet and cell phones when they're trying to solve the problems of a traditional adventure. And so I do think that that Stranger Things is guilty of that, but it also it also takes so many different interesting chances. And it's 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 bad in certain ways, like in a campy kind of a way, but it also is this kind of uh this playground for a number of really talented young actors. And they are leveraging the opportunity really well. It seems kind of like a breeding ground like Freaks and Geeks was for Judd Apatow back in the day, but in in uh in sci- in in like a science fiction kind of genre. I see what you're saying there. Like I do think the acting is really good in that show, especially for the younger kids. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of all of them. You know, like Millie Bobby Brown is definitely, yeah. you know, a standout, but all of them pull their weight in some really cool ways yeah. and they have really good chemistry. So it, it it ends up feeling like a unique adventure, despite that it it borrows like every season sort of borrows from a, from a type of horror film, you know, like season three's invasion of the body snatchers. Season four is uh Freddy Krueger. Season one is like HR Giger alien kind of stuff. I guess also because I'm a nineties kid, I don't have any nostalgia for 80s, and so all of those nostalgic elements are lost on me. And then I also have a very low tolerance or low threshold for horror oh. and anything sort of umbrellaed under that genre. So that's kind of what I like about Stranger Things is that my brain will try to box it into like the traditional CW mode uh, mold of like, you know, a played out uh, romantic uh, soap opera between like tweens or whatever. And then all of a sudden the horror elements will come in and completely take the show in a, in a, in a different direction and put the kids in a kind of peril that I'm not expecting. And that um, my inability to just assume that everyone is safe makes it even more interesting to watch. That's an intriguing way to look at it. I, I just, I don't know what it is. Like I, we should talk to our friend Dan about this, or we I should. should talk to our friend Dan about it, because yeah. like I need to find a way into horror. Not that I need to; I honestly don't really care. But I feel like there's probably a good entry vector into it yeah. to try to gain some perspective that might help me appreciate the genre a bit more. I just don't even know where to start, and most of the horror movies I've seen. I just find either too cheesy or too scary or too contrived. 
Yeah, I think it's perfectly normal and not to seek out the thrill of being scared. Oh, yeah, I also hate that feeling. <laughs> yeah. Like that feeling where you know something scary is going to happen. I don't like it. I don't, I don't understand. Sometimes it's kind of like beer. Like I, I kind of wish I drank beer sometimes because <laughs> it feels like it's a fun thing to like go to a pub and be like, what's on top? And then start talking about the different flavor profiles and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I just not into beer and I can't get into it. And so it's kind of the same or wine or coffee where there's like these cultures or subcultures that I feel like I'm missing out on. Yeah. I mean, when it comes to beer and wine, like lots of times those cultures are are basically there to help people uh, distract themselves from <laughs> alcoholism. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's the same as coffee, right? It's like yeah. people are almost justifying their addiction to it. For sure. Yeah. I saw this segment on uh, the news and this is at like noon. It, it was like the Ottawa News at noon. And they brought this woman on to talk about the ideal wines to drink while you're reading a book. (laughs) And I was like, that's the strangest thing I've ever seen. First of all, like on a public news channel with like no brand affiliation or anything like that to be like advertising alcohol consumption in the middle of the fucking day. If, If this woman had come on and said, this is the craft beer you're supposed to drink while you're reading Jack Reacher, it never would have happened. But because it was wine, because wine is sort of like people forget that it's alcoholic or they just sort of like glaze over it like oh it's something to accentuate your food and like bring out the flavor profile all that like fraser horse shit i mean i'm first of all i'll be honest i am a sucker for pairings like when it comes to what alcohol pairs best with this food I've never really been able to get into it with wine. One of my friends was a wine sommelier. And can you say I, that again slower? Sommelier. <laughs> cool. Did, did I say it weird? No, I just like that word. It's a fun word, yeah. <laughs> and he, so he would like, I, he knew that I didn't care. So I would just text him like a picture of my meal, but it was like craft dinner. And I'd be like, yeah, what should I pair with this? But he would just <laughs> give me a good answer. He would, oh, wow. he would just subvert my own sarcasm <laughs> and then be like, oh, well, obviously, and then just like go into it. And so sometimes I would humor him and buy, I'd be like, hey, so I would take him and I have some jalapeno Miss Vicky's for dinner tonight. <laughs> what kind of wine should I get him at the liquor store? And he would be like, get this one. And I would, and it would actually be great. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> That's the perfect way to combat someone who doesn't take you seriously yeah. is to just be like, fuck you. It is a it is an art form. And here's how here's what I mean. Like the proof yeah. is in the proof is in the pudding. And then I took him up on it and it was always good. Um and I'll be honest, I actually have a coffee table book that is pairing alcohol with music. Uh you're not allowed to have a coffee table if you don't drink coffee. Okay, it's a couch table. <laughs> couch table. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool. I like that story. <laughs> but I, I also see what you're saying. I like the idea of going to a bar with a mixologist and having them ask me what kind of drink I, I want. And I just sort of explain what I'm looking for that night. And then yeah. they just make me a drink. 
I find it really funny that like when people specialize in certain things, <clears throat> like you either get like the highly, highly specialized people in certain high profile professions that are just like immediately well regarded. Yeah. Like, you know, anybody in the in the medical profession who's highly specialized, even if it's something like feet or toenails, I don't know. Just I like wish you thought of a better example, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> like feet, you know, a you podiatrist. Thank you. Appreciate yeah. It. Yeah. Um we're all like, oh, that's so interesting. Like what an accomplished individual. they they it must take a lot for them to know so much about feet. But if it's like a mixologist, like somebody who for some reason really cares about how to mix fluids together, we're like, oh, what a pompous ass. Like, fuck you and your your level of specificity and everything. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think like that. I actually, I get impressed by anyone who dives so deep into any rabbit hole. I yeah. just like passion. So if someone is super into anything, like uh I, I read this whole article once because um, I was trying to see if I should change up. This is such a pretentious sentence I'm about to say. I was trying to see if I should change up the ingredients I was using to make Negronis. What the hell are Negronis? It's like a cocktail. It feels so silly even having this conversation. There's just three different kinds of alcohol and you mix them together. But I was reading about it and there's like whole... People dive so deep into like whether you should store uh, like a vermouth in the wa- in the fridge or on the shelf or what kind of gas you should put with it to help it like be more longevitous. What is what is the word I can? I yeah, sure. We'll just go with longevitous. Longevitous. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I just I find something so intriguing about someone who dives so deep into one very narrow vertical and just learns everything there is to know about it. Um, Like I was recently watching a video of a guy who was like an origami expert. And I don't know, it was fascinating to think about how much origami gets used in like NASA deployments. And it's very, very cool to me when someone can just become basically an expert in any one thing, no matter how narrow it is. Well, usually when we dismiss like areas of specificity, it's relative to like how lucrative it is as a pastime. You know, like, oh, that's not very useful because it won't help you survive. But that's not the case with mixology because you can make a lot of money being a mixologist. Well, the, the, the argument that I'm making is that it's actually capitalism that tells us what is a worthwhile pursuit versus right. not. You know, unless you're like actively pursuing some area of focus that leads you to become a prejudiced douchebag or to entertain alternate realities outside the realm of the truth. Maybe though, but even like um, if I see a guy who just really likes doing woodworking or glass blowing, even if I don't expect him to make a financial economic decision to turn that into a career. Mm-hmm. there's still something very fun and we're just diving into that passion with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm saying that it, like life should be more like that where we all are able to pursue the things that our brains naturally gravitate toward, but we always get pulled away by perceived obligations that maybe 
don't fucking matter at all. Well, I if just, you're not pursuing your dreams, you're pursuing someone else's. <laughs> That's true. When my mom comes back from her glasswork, she goes to her friend's place a few times a week uh, and they they make uh, stained glass in her garage. Mm-hmm. And like things have been kind of hard lately. There's been some stress in the extended family and you know, like life is life is not as 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 happy as it should or could be, mm-hmm. and so she's having a hard time here and there. And, and uh, but then she'll go and like work on her glass, and she comes back and she's like light on her feet. She like wants to show me like what's on her, all, like everything that she's done in the shop, and like she's just like excited and ready to go. And like, can I make this for you? Like, can I do? Like, what yeah. do you think about this and that? And it's like you can literally you can physically see like the weight off of her when she comes back. And it's like, wow, it's, you really need to get a kiln and we need to retrofit uh, one of the spaces uh, in the house that we're not really using and make it your workshop. Get her a kiln. Yeah. Yeah. It's a priority. That'd be amazing. That's so funny to me. Like a kiln is like maybe less than a grand for a good one. And my parents, They've always like they've always been so conservative with finances and barely. But that's not the kind of thing you'd buy yourself, is it? What a kiln! That's the kind of thing you should buy for her. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree. But it's more like she has to sign off on where her workspace is. So we, yeah, we can't really surprise her because we can't also renovate, (laughs) like under her nose. Oh, I guess. But you could buy her a kiln. Yeah, that's true. You could even maybe find a store that sells kilns in Thunder Bay and just say, we want to buy this one. Can we earmark it and then store your door ready for it? Oh. And then your mom can go and check it out. Be like, oh, this is my kiln. I can't wait to get my house ready to take it home. Or we could just hide it in my dad's shed. Like, my mom never goes into the shed. Yeah, that's also true. But then you would still have to do some renovations. Yeah, or there's my dad's tandem bike, which is bright yellow, and she hates it. And there's a tarp over it, and it's like she she doesn't she likes to pretend it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like he'll occasionally ride it to the beer store by himself. <laughs> so he he could totally hide the kiln under the tarp by the fucking fluorescent yellow bike, <laughs> and she would be not the wiser for like ever. But that's what I mean. Like when you are into a passion, I feel like first of all you should. If if someone in your life is into a passion, you should feed it. But oh yeah, you should also just like any passion is worthwhile. My dad was up on the weekend and he was like going on about his sticky note procedure. But like he has a whole <laughs> thing about where he gets a new pile of sticky notes and how he lays them out in his date book and how he uses them and which one he starts with and where he puts it. And I'll just sit there and listen to him because, like, it's obviously something he thinks about a lot. And it's also something I will never integrate into my life realistically except maybe the overall idea that, you know, you should just confidently dive in deep into something that you want to do. I've noticed that about my dad, too, is that he has this, like, whole inner life, especially as it pertains to his, like, uh, pet projects his construction projects are on the house yeah and he doesn't ever share like any of his projects and i don't think it's like a trust thing or you know i don't think he's like an introvert i just think that he 
doesn't even think to talk it out with us. So yeah. he'll be like, he'll get an idea in his head and he'll start drawing up blueprints and start doing extensive, extensive research and buying books and making notes. And every once in a while, I'll come into his room and he'll be like drawing something and it'll be like an advanced, like AutoCAD drawing, but in pencil. Mm. And it'll be, it'll have his cursive all over it. It'll, it'll look like, it'll look like a, the blueprint for a, for a, a, a ship or something. That's I'll be like, so Dad, what the, what the fuck are you doing? Like, what what's going on? And he'll be like, I'm working on another version of the tandem bike, like one your mother will actually like uh, or something. That's so sweet. Yeah, and it's like so. But if I don't go and like interrupt him and yeah. be like, Hey, Dad, what the fuck are you doing? He won't tell me. He'll just be like, He's like a bee. That he right. like gets a he gets a script in his head and he's like, Okay, well, gotta go execute the script and then. He just fucks off and does something for two months, and it's like, yeah, you, know, you you could collaborate with us. Like, we'll help. My dad is very similar, and and then he would get the project to a certain point, and then he wants to share, and he wants yeah. to tell everyone. And there are certain points along the progression of a project where he will then be like, "Here's what I found. Here's what I've done. Here's where I'm headed with it." But I think it's just like, you know, there are things you've worked on before. There are things I've worked on before where you you don't really want to talk about it yet because it's just not ready yet. Or it's not real yet. You have to reach a certain point with it before it's worth like introducing to the world. Yeah. Sometimes I will introduce it a little too early just to add some accountability. Yeah. So then I can say I'm working on this and then maybe people will follow up. And that yeah. means I've sort of, I made myself responsible to do it. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like when you, uh, you know, you go on, on a couple of dates with somebody new and you don't know whether or not they're like part of your life yet. Yeah. You're, you're waiting to introduce them. Exactly. Uh, speaking of which, totally unrelated, but if we could pop the stack a bit, we were talking about horror films earlier. Yeah, let's pop the stack. Horror films are good. Uh, they're good date movies because when you get scared, you can hold on to your partner. Just, uh-huh. I'm just, I'm just saying that it's nothing. I'm not alluding to anything in particular. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I'm sure you've probably used them quite a bit in that sense. I wouldn't say used. You would say watched. I would say watched. Okay. Um. So, are there horror movies that you've watched recently that you'd like to talk about? Just Stranger Things. I would. I would qualify it as a horror did you find yourself needing to be reassured or needing to reassure yes while you watched it yes that's amazing oh sorry oh you're asking oh no i did watch it by myself (laughs) but but the but the need for somebody else i'll be honest you know it it was kind of there (laughs) yeah i mean i feel like that with almost anything i'm not really one to like to do things alone so when i'm doing something alone i'm always just like, I really want to do this. And then certain people in your life, you do something with other people, and then you want to do it again with those other people. Yeah. Like, I want to share this experience with you now. Oh, are you talking about sex? Nope. <laughs> Just kidding. What? <laughs> I'm very unsure where this is headed. <laughs> That's funny. Do you want to pop the stack again? Sure. What movie did we <laughs> Today we watched an episode of a TV show. Tony, you should know that. It wasn't a movie. 
<laughs> That's your it was a TV show. Again, because we wanted to pop the stack and do two things at once. Mm-hmm. So we didn't have enough time to watch an entire movie and record. Great choice. Yeah. Actually, this recommendation came from a friend of the podcast. Oh, really? Or I, I should say a friend of us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, whoever it was, thank you. Amazing choice. Mm-hmm. Um, not one that was on my radar, obviously. I had not seen it. I don't know if that's obvious, but I'm pretty obviously uncultured. And yeah, what did we watch? We watched a, a BBC series from 2005 written by Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant called Extras. I always forget how much I love Stephen Merchant. Yes. I think it's really important that we stress how talented Stephen Merchant is in particular. He's so funny. I think that the first uh, exposure to him I had, believe it or not, was when he did that um, Zip Sync Battle show. Oh, Remember was that? that with Jimmy Fallon or was it with Ice? Uh... Yeah, it was like the the Jimmy Fallon spinoff show okay. hosted by LL Cool J. LL Cool J, yeah. Yeah, right. And he was on it and I was just like, oh, this guy's hilarious. But I don't think I really knew him from anything else at the time. Well, because he, he spent uh, the most... I want to say the most successful parts of his career behind the camera rather than in front of it. Yeah, he's super funny. So um, the concept of extras is basically, uh, it's about about an actor in Britain somewhere, a middle-class British actor played by uh, Ricky Gervais. His name is Andy Melman. And uh, Andy wants to be known as a, a prestigious, well-established comedian. He wants to make a real comedy, but he's stuck in all of these side gigs where he essentially is in the background of these really high-quality productions uh, in the shadow of uh, great movie stars. So each episode of the series, Andy's on a different project, whether it's a TV show or a movie, and usually like, there's a high-profile celebrity who is part of the project that he's working on. And so he has these kind of chance encounters with famous people like Kate Winslet or Patrick Stewart or Orlando Bloom or um, uh, Clive Owen. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe is in an episode, and this was when he was 12 or 13, so he was quite young. And kind of the pull of the series is that uh, Gervais' character and his best friend have a really kind of uh, well-written and wonderful, funny, uh, platonic friendship. And th- they're they're basically working the doldrums of a shitty day job. Like like th- this acting gig, even though they get to see celebrities every day, the job is soul-sucking and it's yeah. humiliating and uh, it's really hard on them. <clears throat> and so kind of in the periphery of every episode, the the main celebrity is shown to be like an egomaniacal uh, bastard. Every celebrity guest essentially plays a version of themselves that behaves very badly. Like, for example, Clive Owen is a misogynistic, womanizing piece of crap, or Daniel Radcliffe uh, is a perverted little boy who's pursuing much older women on the set, or Kate uh, Winslet has really poor boundaries and is talking to people about 
their sex lives inappropriately or uh Orlando Bloom is obsessed with like finding some groupies or like you know being uh doted upon by like female members of the film crew and yet no one's really interested in him because he's kind of bland and not a very good actor <laughs> but anyway so the the appeal of the show is in addition to the like sort of main arc of of gervais and his friends his friends characters it, the pull of the show is the fact that every celebrity guest is willing to make fun of themselves in an affable and self-effacing and uh, interesting way like they're they they poke holes in their own sort of mythos and and basically are able to laugh at themselves and then it also on a meta level gives gervais and merchant the opportunity to basically rub elbows with all these people uh in hollywood that they have probably before the office like very much aspired to eventually work with like it's a big thing uh in uh the english uh, entertainment to make it in Hollywood. You rarely ever see that happen. Like it happened with the, the the members of Monty Python and Rowan Atkinson and whatever. But there's a lot of British comedians who don't really make it across the pond. And so Gervais and and Merchant kind of built this empire around the Office and around their radio programs and around extras, around being distinctly uh, having distinctly middle class upbringings. And sort of um, wanting to pull that apart and uh, and like uh, really work through their whole desire to become famous and what that means and why they have it to begin with and whether it's healthy and whether it's something that they should even aspire to. Yada, 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 yada. Extras is a very, very good show. And there's one particular episode for the podcast that we wanted to cover because um, it features a character with a disability. In fact, she has cerebral palsy and the actress does have cerebral palsy in real life. And it's 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 just a a wonderful kind of disabled cameo, if you want to call it that. Back up a bit. Did this come out before The Office? No, it came out uh, in 05. So it was two years after The Office concluded. Okay. So he had already sort of made it at this point yeah and in his early career like he was a he was a pop star or you know like a a low-level pop star locally uh i'm saying gervais like gervais has had gervais has basically worked all his life uh as a as a artist in the limelight and he just made it kind of big uh much later in life with the office gervais has been kind of embroiled lately in uh some controversy because of transphobic remarks that he made in his most recent comedy special. And, um, does he have a new one? It is a new one. Yeah. He makes some blatantly transphobic jokes and he really, really poorly, he just really fails to read the room and it's really disappointing, but he's, he's never been known for his like deft standup. And I've always kind of found He's always been known as a guy who tries to avoid being following those norms, like almost edgy just for the sake of being edgy. Yeah, but it's like a juvenile kind of, in a juvenile way. Yeah, it's just to get a rise other people. Yeah, he'll make some really, like, there are very few 
stand-up comedians nowadays who still make jokes about like AIDS, for example, or, you know, these like taboo subjects that are a quick way to make an audience kind of groan and shift in their seats. And I actually think that like the heart and the intelligence in all of Gervais' most salient works has been because of merchants. I think it's their pairing that kind of uh, alleviates the hard edges of Gervais, the things about him that are grating and kind of uh, arrogant. Yeah, because he does have this, this he has this sort of uh, uh, underbaked comedic outlook uh, that so long as he's pushing buttons, he's doing something right as a comedian. Yeah, And I think it's a fundamental inability to kind of read the room and, and a and a lack of self-awareness. It's also just lazier, right? It's very, very, very lazy. It's obviously hard to make a good joke. It's hard to be a comedian that is respectable and funny and doesn't cross too many boundaries because every joke is a risk, like we said, and mm-hmm. every comedy special will inevitably offend someone and i think you have to be ready for that but he doesn't seem to try to like do the extra work to you know what they say like if you're gonna make a joke that's offensive it better be good yeah and i feel like he doesn't do the second part of that i i think gervais is probably like when his comedy is central to himself and his own uh ego and his experience with uh trying to become a successful entertainer. I think when he speaks to his own experience, he can be he can be quite human. He is good at roasting people that should be roasted. Like I, I did like when he did his Oscars hosting and he kind of came after a lot of the celebrity and celebrities. Uh I I thought that was ballsy. I don't think many other hosts would do that. And he did have this sort of, this is why you hired me if you don't like it too bad mentality, which was a bit refreshing in a stuffy environment like that. But that's because it's already stuffy and those jokes sort of take the tension out of the room. But in certain comedy specials, it's almost like he's in a neutral place trying to add tension. Yeah. He's like the only comedian in the 2020s that thinks that, you know, devoutly stating that they are an atheist is controversial. Right. Uh, and so he really, I think, doesn't understand the the tenets of effective uh, stand-up comedy. Again, I like I see what you're saying about the whole Emmys and Oscars thing about uh, having the quote-unquote courage to deflate the tires of these like powerful people yeah. and to and to confront them with some certain like with uncomfortable truths but at the same time his mean-spiritedness comes with a kind of lack of post-processing of thoughtfulness and i think it's it's ultimately too easy like i think between yeah. the two of us we have the ability to be potentially cruel and snide if we need to be for the purposes of a constructive joke about disability for example but you 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 deploy that cruelty very, very select- selectively. Like it, 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 context 
matters. And understanding when you can make those cutting remarks for maximum effect, it takes a certain intelligence. And I really think that Gervais lacks that that filter. I think he he gets really excited about about uh, touchy subjects, and that excitement is simplistic. And um, well, he also didn't have the same trajectory as most comedians. So yes. he didn't really have to grind it out and learn that the same way most comedians do. He just yes. sort of got famous and then instantly was probably able to sell big shows. Yes. And it worked. And so he never, it was just confirmation bias, right? He, he didn't sure. have to learn the ropes, so to speak. Not to say that he never struggled or anything. I'm sure maybe at some point he did. But just when it comes to going through that comedic, the stand-up grind of being rejected and getting just bombing miserably, I feel like he had a bit more of a kickstart, like a head start when it came to his trajectory. I, I agree with you there. And that that sort of false start or that momentum that he rode to like make it to the stand-up stage without those the prerequisite bombing and the humility. I think that's kind of his undoing in the present moment. But also it's hard to blame him for that because like once you're famous, you can't pretend to not be famous just to go through those grinds again. Sure. I'm thinking of a counterexample. Do you know who Neil Brennan is? Yeah, I love Neil Brennan. Yeah, me too. He's uh, one of the co-writers of The Chappelle Show. And he um, uh, started a stand-up career, I want to say, like five or six years ago. He's released but a he's few... he's been a writer, fought, like best friends with one of the all-time great stand-ups. Yeah, the longest-running, I mean, like, <laughs> for sure, uh, agreed. He, um, it, it, it has to be said, though, like, his stand-up career started fairly modestly. He had a few specials on netflix did and you i see really the three mics i did i think it's the three so mics good. it's wonderful it's uh it's really funny it's it's equal parts funny sad uh compelling uh uncomfortable and cathartic it's a really and then there's one mic dedicated to you where he just does one-liners and puns uh -huh. that's true oh no i hope i'm not a one-liner fucking Humor type yep. person. No, Tony. You're no. a pun guy. Please don't say that. Roll the tape back. Oh, <laughs> no. Okay. Well, I will work my way away from yeah. that tendency. <laughs> All I'm trying to say is that Brandon Brandon approached his uh, his beginning with stand up com comedy with a lot of humility, and uh, I think that he's quite accomplished. Like I think he's pretty talented. Well, he also approaches life with a lot of humility. Like he's struggled a lot with, you know, his own mental health and mm -hmm. trying to navigate that. And he's been very open about it. So that has informed his comedy very well. Whereas on the flip side, like we're talking about with Gervais, like he didn't necessarily have to navigate it the same way. No. No, uh, Gervais is considered like a a comedy scholar because of because of The Office and how ubiquitous it now is, and the entire concept of the mockumentary and basically spurring, uh, you know, with with Merchant like the cringe comedy as a whole. Yeah, 
but I, w- I want to say like the difference with Gervais is that he has a, a massive inferiority complex, despite all that we're saying about how arrogant he is, despite the obviousness of his humor. He very clearly needs to ingratiate himself to conventional Hollywood. You know, like the whole reason after The Office, everything that, that he made was kind of tinged with the involvement of, of American celebrity. Like he needed to show the world that these these iconic, uh, you know, gods of entertainment wanted to work with him. And I think this this recent bout of transphobic nonsense is because he very much needs to ally himself with other comedians who are trafficking in the same nonsense. Yeah. He needs, like, he. I'm, I'm sure on some level he wants to demonstrate to Chappelle that he's willing to go to the places that, you know, the other quote-unquote greats are willing to go. And so, he, so he's doing this. And it's a profound uh, miscalculation and really disappointing. And he has demonstrated a certain affability and compassion for the LGBTQ community and for like animal rights and everything else. He's clearly a multifaceted and thoughtful human being. You couldn't write the office without being that. So it's, so it's really sad to see him sort of committing the same, the same kind of prejudice that he has also fought against in other contexts. Yeah. I mean, his argument would be that it's, just jokes and it's an argument that is unclear which side of the fence i sit on for it because sometimes i do agree that like jokes should be jokes and other times i feel that you know some jokes do cross lines and it's it's really just subjective and personal and i don't think you can write any hard and fast rules on it. I don't think you can say he did this, therefore this. I think it's just very taste specific. And yeah. it will depend on how it hits you when you hear it. It depends on there's so many factors. I remember watching a video like an HBO thing called Talking Funny and it was Gervais Seinfeld Chris Rock and Louis C.K. And they were all just like talking shop about comedy. And it was uh-huh. very interesting to see because those are four like very different comedians yep. sort of approaching the same craft from high leagues. But it definitely felt like Ricky Gervais was sort of in a category of his own when it came to the grind. Like Seinfeld obviously also got famous very quickly for something else. But he was still working as a stand-up. And that's From a very, very, very young age. Very young. And it, he's always been doing that. And you can tell that even though he was successful because of his show, he still is a comedian, like a thoroughbred comedian. Well, the foundation is there that sort of explains his trajectory. Yeah. But then there's a the Larry David to his Stephen Merchant as well. Right, right, exactly. And and Larry David, I believe, this is probably going to... I mean, I think Larry David is more enduring than Seinfeld in terms of his relevance and in terms of his comedic courage and also his character. I like Larry a lot more than Seinfeld. See, Larry David has really approached how he can 
navigate touchy subjects and uh-huh. potentially, you know, I could see Larry David making some sort of joke that might offend certain minority groups, but he does it in a way where you're never like mad at him for doing it. Well, no, because he always puts himself at the center of the humiliation and of yeah. the wrong. So it, it has to do with um it has to do with the spirit of the joke and I guess who the target of the joke is. Yeah. And so this is why it's kind of um it's I have mixed feelings because like admittedly I have to say I've followed Gervais for the last fifteen years. I don't know if you have to be ashamed of that. He still is very much a seminal comedian. I'm just saying that there's a lot of history here. So I'm going to speak to this with a level of nuance, no matter what, like my personal politics are. And uh, I just think that uh, when you look at how Gervais treats the disabled character on this episode of Extras, for example, the writing on this episode is excellent because very good because all of the all of the the pain points the transgressions all of the awkwardness and the the discomfort it all comes from the able-bodied characters not able to cope with their anxieties around disability in a, a in a in an appropriate way and so you know this disabled woman with cerebral palsy walks onto the set of Gervais' show and he initially doesn't even realize that she's disabled. He thinks she's just like wasted or something. And he comes out of the gate with like an, a completely inappropriate remark. And it's hilarious. Actually, this will make you laugh. What? Jesus, look. Pissed up Nutter over there. He's had a few. Actually, is he pissed or mental? Oh, she comes. It's my sister. Huh? She's got cerebral palsy. No. Not her, another nutter that was not not another nut. She's she's not and nut. She's gone now. That when I'm in, shot on and just shot off again. Just. Okay. This is my sister, Hiya. Francesca. You all right? You all right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you do in this? What Judith? Like she said, what do you do in this? Oh, um, a background artist. Oh, right. And what does that entail? What does that entail? Yeah. Just standing around, really. Although it's not what I do. I'm a, I'm a real actor. This is just mm. sort of like pocket money. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll bet they also that, didn't they? <laughs> so I love that clip because it's like first Gervais assumes that the woman with the with CP who's walking toward him must be inebriated, like must be a vagrant off the street. And then like she comes up to them and introduces herself and he makes a complete ass of himself in this process, just making total assumptions about who she is, what her deal is. And then she totally puts him in his place with like the viability of his fucking career choice as an extra, which is something that he's coping with all throughout. So the disabled character is allowed to be confident is allowed to be self-assured um is the episode respects her and then it forces everyone else around her to deal with their demons as it pertains to like disability and otherness and it's just fucking great it's very nuanced like it does feel informed one of those rare times where to me it felt like a disabled person informed the script beyond just 
being cast in a show because mm-hmm. there are just little like this. I'm gonna play a clip because this scene is nuanced, but also so real, and also one of those things that you feel like only disabled people would write about in a show. For sure. <laughs> yeah, right, a man in charge of my career. I'm glad you're <laughs> kindly funny. She's laughing at my life. <laughs> it's been lovely to see her laughing. She laughs all the time. She lives to laugh. Well, you have to be able to laugh, don't you? Keeps you sane. I thought she was sane. No, I mean, it keeps anybody sane. Oh, right, <laughs> yes. <laughs> laughing and... You know, don't reckon that if you can laugh, you can cope with, like, anything. <laughs> it's got given gift, isn't it? Laughing in the face of adversity. Mm. It seems like exactly like some, like a response a disabled person would say. Like, I've, I've you know, people have praised me for having a, um, a positive outlook and being able to laugh and having a sense of humor and not taking life seriously. So, yeah. Like, like the other thing, yeah, that happens all the time. But the other thing that this clip does is not addressing the person they're even talking to. Right. They're just talking about them in front of them, yep. which is another thing that happens all the time. Oh, wow. It's really good of him to be out. And it's like a double sin, right? First of all, tell me it's good to be out. But also, don't tell me it's good to be out. What I like, too, is that the dis- like the disabled character is allowed small subtle moments to confront the inappropriateness of what these what what these people are saying without it necessarily like being uh like a a full on call out which like in 2005 wouldn't have been like wouldn't have been expected necessarily if you know what i mean yeah so so there's like you you're watching her navigate these like encounters like with a with a deafness that comes from experience. So again, like the writing is just really good. I also love that she is repeatedly misinterpreted. Like, like the able-bodied characters have to ask her to repeat what she said over and over. And it's another thing that is not new to her at all. But, but rather than exasperation, she finds like, she's, she's just like, she's a fucking full person and she doesn't have to deal with this nonsense like whatever, like fuck these people. I I, I don't know how to. <laughs> I'm struggling to articulate it, but let's try with another clip because I feel like this is one of those shows where it's just so nuanced that you can't really articulate. It's just how people approach disability with this blatant disregard, but not even malicious disregard. It's just a ignorant disregard. Yeah, it's total inexperience. Yeah. And they don't necessarily realize that that, that said inexperience is potentially inexcusable. Case in point. I keep seeing her around. What is up with her? Um, she's got cerebral palsy. Oh. oh, that's worth remembering, I tell you. That is another way you win an Oscar. Seriously, think about it. Daniel Day-Lewis in My Left Foot. Oscar. Dustin Hoffman, Rain Man, Oscar. John Mills, Ryan's daughter, Oscar. Yeah. Seriously. You are guaranteed an Oscar if you play a mentor. Yeah, that's actually Kate Winslet uh, who is speaking. And so there's an example of a celebrity who's perfectly game to kind of make fun of themselves 
and say and participate in a characterization of themselves that is potentially unflattering. It's that willingness to be self-effacing for the sake of the joke, for the sake of exploring a kind of ignorance and cruelty that is real, that you kind of have to like respect the show. One, one uh, smaller detail that I also love about the episode is that there are a number of shots of the, uh, the disabled character like walking in real time. And they are wide shots that show her like in full profile. So you see her her legs and her uh, the difference in her gait. And like, so you see it in full. And all of the able-bodied characters find her pitiable, but she carries herself with the requisite confidence of a fully self-assured individual. And she makes a number of jokes throughout the episode and just kind of, I don't know, there's a confidence there that seems completely organic to the character and to the actress. It's the perfect role to kind of like introduce people to disability in 2005. Yeah. And it's it's great because her presence makes everyone else feel like a fish out of water. It's not the disabled person who's in a an unnatural environment. It's everyone else who doesn't really know how to react. And so they project all of their insecurities onto her. And then she just comes back at them with like sobering remarks like, oh, so I bet everyone says that uh, they'll eventually get a real acting gig or uh, laughing is a coping mechanism for anyone, abled or not. I, You have to think that that this episode must have been written like with the consultation from the disabled actress. I can't, I can't remember her name. I should have looked it up, but I, uh, apparently she is like a, like a working comedian and you can, you can tell, you can tell. Yeah. There are probably things in this script that people do without even realizing they do them that are like disability things. And, things that almost feel like they're written for you and I as the disabled viewer. It really does feel like it's written for us. Yeah. It so does because I don't shudder away from it. I don't recoil in disgust. Right. Despite that there there is an awkwardness in the air, it's a cathartic it's a cathartic awkwardness for disabled people because it's kind of shining a light on these particular kind of painful social encounters from the disabled perspective. There's a one more clip uh, that we grabbed, which I think is uh, emblematic of the whole episode. It's the introduction of the Maggie character. Oh, God. What, what, what have you done? What? What's happened? You all right? Oh, no, no. No, I've got cerebral palsy. Don't worry. Oh, good. <laughs> I thought you did a, a fall or something. No, I'm cool, really. Oh, hello then. I'm Maggie. I'm Suzanne again, and this is my sister, Fran. Good hello. to meet you. Hi. <laughs> uh, are you in this as well? Oh, she's just here to watch. Oh, I was going to say, you know, <laughs> oh, I had a bit of spare time, you know, because my tap dancing class was cancelled, so... Right. Joke. Tap dancing me. Tap oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, like you like there's a kind of um like Maggie, the the woman who has is encountering our disabled character for the first time, is disarmed by the sight of this person with cerebral palsy. 
And so she she has this tendency, first of all, to assume that our disabled character is vulnerable. Uh, and like she takes everything that the wheelie says as though it's literal because the general assumption is that, you know, like a good sensible uh, nature or humor escapes people who are disabled. And so this, this, this interaction, like this work that our wheelie character is doing to kind of assuage Maggie's anxiety, like it is so real. I can't tell you the number of times I've had painful interactions with perfect strangers, just trying to tell them, that I am in fact okay. That all I that I have cerebral palsy, but I'm fine. It's one thing to be able to write about how people wrongly interact with disabled people, because a I think it's more common because that's the able-bodied perspective, and it's also easier to empathize with or sympathize with because I get it. Like I understand that people just don't necessarily have a full working experience and so they're going to make mistakes and that's okay but how the disabled person responds in this show is very much emblematic of how I would have to respond because when someone says something to me like when I'm meeting a new person and they say something that is a little jarring or maybe even a little offensive my instinct isn't going to be to rail on them and to try to punish them or tell them that they, what they did was wrong. Because A, it's just not constructive. But B, I know what that they're trying to be sincere and they're, yes. they're being, they're coming from a good place. So I'm yeah. not going to try to ruin them because I also don't want them to stop trying or to stop asking. Like when someone asks me a question, even if it's an uncomfortable question, I can avoid answering it, but I don't want to dissuade them from asking another question again later on. So it's kind of the same thing. A mistake of that nature should be a learning opportunity. Yeah. And I know people say that there should come a point where we no longer have to educate people when they make said mistakes. But again, if somebody's coming at it from a sincere point of view, then I'm okay. I'm okay providing that education. Right. Curb Your Enthusiasm would make a whole song and dance about about Larry's performance of transgression, like him making the poor joke. The show would revolve around his uh, bad take or his bad reaction. Whereas in this episode of Extras, you don't watch uh, Ricky Gervais say these terrible things and then think, oh, my God, that Gervais will say and do anything. You actually are rooting for the disabled character first. Right. You're you're siding with her. And you don't necessarily think that Gervais is a shithead or that Maggie is a shithead, but you're happy that this disabled person is having this opportunity to to be who they are, despite all this fucking white noise around able-bodied anxiety. And so it's um I, I love that. Like, we don't come from this episode thinking like, my, my, that Gervais will really go anywhere. Yeah. Which is the sentiment you're supposed to have when you watch his stand-up comedy, when he's not working with Merchant and all of those shitty instincts are not dialed in. When Gervais gets up on a, a stand-up stage, you're supposed to think like, holy fuck, there's nowhere he won't transgress. Yeah. And then he, and then he's just like kind of an ass clown. 
you nailed it earlier when you said, like, the way Larry David approaches it is he makes himself the butt of the joke and the humility and the humiliation. And Gervais, in his stand-up, doesn't really do that. He's making fun of everyone else from a place of, like, he lords over people. And that's kind of, he kind of does it in a funny way. Sometimes where he'll go over the top about how rich and famous he is. But I don't even think it's entirely humble the way he does it. But in this show, at least in this episode, I've only ever seen this particular episode of this show. He is a sympathetic character because he is struggling with this whole thing as much as everyone else. And so he positions himself as morally inferior to the disabled character. Yeah, uninformed, like inexperienced, uncomfortable. Uh, but he's, he he does, he is aware that he is insufficient in these regards. Yeah. So it's that, I think it's the, the awareness that must come from Merchant because it's, it's absent in all of Gervais' works outside of Merchant. There's a, a show called Afterlife, uh, which I don't want to get into too, too much, but um, Gervais, when he's not working with Merchant, he'll surround himself with all these deeply talented people, these these British comedians, uh, who who will inevitably imbue parts of his work with, you know, some appealing traits. There are, I watched the entirety of Afterlife, and I ended up being mad at Gervais at times because he seems to think that if he, um, if he, characterizes himself as fundamentally grieving or sad or self-loathing that he can then go and have full artistic license to be completely cruel and like prejudicey and gross and without the better instincts of his writing partner he has the worst instincts ever it's like it's like there isn't too many degrees of separation from Gervais, the individual artist, and uh, his most iconic character, David Brent. You know, like, and it's hard for me to see that and to admit it because I've been such a fan of his for so long. And, like, The Office is, like, a foundation to my overall, like, love of comedy. You know, I watch it every year at Christmas time. So, yeah, it's kind of tough. It's tough. And then again, this extras episode was just so good. So you see him navigating disability so perfectly and putting it ultimately in the hands of of a of incredibly capable disabled actress and revolving the entire episode around her. And just like the jokes are pitch perfect. And you wonder like why can't he do the same for other minority experiences? You know, like, you know, why does he punch down to trans people i don't know probably again because he just wants to ingratiate himself to the likes of Chappelle and you know whoever else traffics in transphobia lately that wants to get up on a stand-up stage yeah i I wouldn't put them in the same league i still have a lot more respect for Chappelle than i do for gervais but yeah i see what you're saying that said this was a very very good vehicle for disability content that I was not expecting. Mm -hmm. Maybe because it was bite-sized, so it was just a little snack, right? Like, if it was a full movie 
of this, I don't know, maybe it would be saturated and then it would come off as overplayed. I don't really think so. I don't think so either. I think it was very well-centered and grounded and the direction of it was very good. Yeah, I think like, I mean, if you look at Hello Ladies, if you look at The Office, there's a caliber, a caliber of insight and an exploration of the alienation of various work environments, for example, that is just like unmatched. There's a lot of brilliance uh, in Merchant and Gervais. And uh, it's just a shame when said brilliance doesn't extend to everything. Yeah, yeah. But the Stephen Merchant Lipson battle is worth a watch. (laughs) (laughs) Again, he's one of those guys that I love when your humor, you you can tell the confidence in your own humor when it's so self-deprecating that it's embarrassing. Uh And Stephen Merchant does that very well, where he'll just like look like a fool for the joke. Absolutely, yeah. He puts everything on the line for the laugh. Yeah, I love that. There is a ton of humanity in his work. There's also one more clip they haven't listened to. Mm. I didn't want to upset her. Sorry, uh, what do you mean? Sorry, what the what? What do you mean? Oh, I will. She was saying the only thing that keeps her going is the thought that one day she'll be in heaven and everything will be all right. And I didn't want to go, no, you're barking up the wrong tree, love. There's no God, there's no heaven. You're not going to be up there talking normally and running around legs and playing volleyball and everything. So I didn't, I said a... Like a white lie, isn't it? So, yeah, so throughout the episode, Gervais discovers that our wheelie character uh, is religious and rather than tell her or confess to her that he's an atheist, which is a fact about himself, that he repeats on a daily basis, whether he's on the comedy stage or on Twitter or whatever, something he can't fucking let go of for some reason. Um, in any case, he wants to protect her and insulate her from the truth of life because people infantilize disabled people. And so this is another kind of example of that, and it's kind of a perfect example of it. Again, during his apology and his confession, he misunderstands her and asks her to repeat herself, and it's uncomfortable in the way that it would be fucking uncomfortable. So it's deeply embarrassing for Gervais, this confession is, and it works out perfectly because he's just sort of left to steep in his embarrassment, and the disabled character uh, is not victorious, is not self-righteous, doesn't call him out, but is still is still able to be herself and be the most sensible person in the room. Uh, so yeah, it just it read it that the the tone is perfect. The the joke is great. Like the target of the humor is what it should be. I don't like to say should when it comes to comedy, but you know what I mean. It feels right. It feels right. Yeah. 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 I mean. It's hard to say anything more about it because we've talked about it longer than the episode itself <laughs> at this point. Yeah. But I think it's worth a watch. I mean, it's only 30 minutes. It is a little tricky to find. It was super tricky to find. I almost had to resort to illegal means. Uh, easy on the almost. It's, it seems like it just got shelved somewhere. Agreed. 
How should we end this? I think we could probably end it right here. How long have we gone for? Are we are we at time? We're only at 90 minutes. Oh. oh, only at 90. Do you want to play a Wheel Breakers? Sure, do you? Uh, yeah, I do. Wheel Breakers. Okay, Jamie. Recently, I've been shopping for new sheets. As I told you... I've been having a harder time sleeping recently. I keep waking up too hot. I installed a fan on my wall. And I have two fans in my bedroom. These are all new things for me. It's very strange. Usually, I have no trouble sleeping. I go to sleep, and then I sleep right until someone comes in in the morning to get me up. And I'm always cold. But now, all of those things are untrue. So, as part of it... Wait... Tony, who uh-huh. is turning up your body temperature? Why are you so hot and bothered all the time? Now that it's summer and the sun is warm. Her name is Summer, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> there is a sun that warms me up. Uh-huh. And despite two fans and, you know, I, I tried, I've tried everything to, to sleep better. I'm trying new sheets. Okay. With a high thread count? Well, here's here's the thing. So I've done my deep dive into sheets to try to figure out... Like you've been jumping on your bed? This is the mic I was telling you about. You are <laughs> the one mic. You just said you do a deep dive into your sheets. Uh-huh. Okay, fine. So I jump into the bed, <laughs> and from the bed, I start Googling different types of sheets. Uh-huh. There's linen sheets. There's cotton sheets there's thread counts are they real are they marketing egyptian cotton is that real is it marketing linen sheets did i already say that microfiber sheets bamboo sheets so i sheets i started going down this rabbit hole to try to pick the best sheet and no sheet i think i found one but for this wheel breaker, I'm going to say that I'm going to make you fully able-bodied and I'm going to switch out all of your bedding. I'm going to take all your sheets and replace them with a deli meat of your choice. Oh my God. Well, okay, so I have to, I have to sleep with salami. Are you going to choose salami? Because I'm giving you deli meat of your choice. But now let me also say you pick one deli meat and that is your choice. You don't Wait. get to have a different deli meat every day. And I can't. How do I wash my deli meat sheet? I will give you a fresh set of your choice of deli meat every day, but it will have to be the same one that you choose from the beginning. Can I eat it if I'm hungry? If you're hungry, you can eat it, yeah. But you'll also have to sleep in it. <laughs> so and you'll probably un- never want to be a night shower person because <laughs> you'll need to wake up and shower the smell of deli meat off of you. Damn. Otherwise, I'll smell like I'll smell like a cold cut all day. Which maybe is fine. My sister used to work at Subway. The world's a Subway. Our Lady Peace reference. Killing it. And she uh, always came home smelling like Subway. <laughs> Jamie's beds are Subway. Subway. Yeah. So would you do salami? Salami. Bologna. This is a weird one. I feel like if I agree, if I agree to this, I, I'm low-key confessing to a fetish of some kind. 
I don't think so. And also, what's wrong with that? All right, the, how about this? Can it be Gabagoo? <laughs> it could be, yeah. All right. Yeah, I'll do it if it's Gabagoo. You're going to do Gabagoo? Gabagoo. Okay. <laughs> and every night you're going to sleep in it, so then you shower after. I shower after. What happens when you want to bring someone home with you? Yeah, what if she's a vegetarian? <laughs> <laughs> Even if she's not, it's going to be tough to find someone who likes Gabagoo that much that they want to sleep in it. Because that's pungent. Can I tell her why? You can tell her that you just think this is the best sheet material you can find. <laughs> you can tell her you did a deep dive into your <laughs> into bed of gabagoo. Gabagoo. Oh, I don't know. I don't think this is, I don't think this would be gaba good for my intimate life. No. You'd have to change it up pretty regularly. But I will supply you with a daily supply of gabagool sheets. And if they're fresh sheets and I'm out of cold cuts, I, I will have a source of dinner. That's true. But then you won't have sheets. <laughs> yeah. And oh, I can't get a dog because the dog will... The, yeah, I won't eat be able your to sheets. have pets. Yeah, the dog will eat my sheets. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. And just like, unless I give a lot of advance notice and like really try to explain myself potentially even like blog about it or become famous for the like the meat sheet lifestyle guy yeah they're gonna think i'm like a serial killer because it's definitely like a serial killer thing to do sleep with meat Ugh. maybe but i think that would be even too transparent for a serial killer a yeah. lot of serial killers are better than that at hiding their strange idiosyncrasies yeah and i don't think that it would be like affable or uh, enough for me to become like a subway mascot. Meet the guy who's slept with a cold cut for six months and lost 25 pounds. I think as soon as people found out about it, it would hurt you more than it helped you. <laughs> yeah. I think it's going to be one of those secrets that you like tell your partner and you hope that they like you enough that they just accept you for it and they keep it between the two of you and they just you find a way to work through it together. But as soon as the wider population or your wider network finds out, it's going to be a hot topic. You know what? I feel like if I invited my bros over, they would snack on the sheet every fucking time. Do you think so? Even though yeah, I have at least one there? friend. I, I have at least one friend who would Even fucking... Even if the gabagool is covered in your gabagool? No, it won't be because it'll be before I go to bed. I get a new sheet every day and they'll come over before I go to bed. So it'll be fresh. But you still have to have enough sheets to sleep in. Yeah, well, I'm not providing you with enough to eat. And, and this isn't free dinner. <laughs> this is the only way that I could rationalize it. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I do have a, I do, my, my buddies would literally come over and eat, eat all my entire sheet. Would they? Maybe like three times. Your house would smell so bad. If I could, if I could show you the average size of the sandwiches that some of these guys drag into my garage, like they totally would eat. Yeah, the but how many times before they realize what they're eating? Please, please, uh, after the episode's done, uh, tweet at or Instagram my friend Franco and be like, "Would Tito eat the sheet?" The answer is yes. <laughs> Tito would eat the sheet. Tito would eat the sheet. He would, yeah, shamelessly too. Is Tito a sheet eater? Well, he's a food eater. Okay. He has a rav ravenous 
ravenous appetite because he's like he's a mover and like like really active like sporty dude and he's just like intensely hungry all the fucking time well maybe he would eat your sheets but you would have to ration him you like (laughs) maybe give him a pillowcase (laughs) oh no do i have to do i have to put meat uh pillowcases on your entire bedding set (laughs) so you get a gabagool duvet cover gabagool talk sheet fitted sheet pillowcases i'm giving you two pillowcases and a blanket would i even get a gabagoo uh throw pillow that says live laugh love (laughs) (laughs) it's like it's like out of like mustard or something condiments (laughs) that's disgusting (laughs) you this is your idea i know and i didn't think you'd entertain it like this (laughs) i like food okay i will never visit you (laughs) <laughs> the smell is going to permeate. Like, it's not going to be restricted to your bedroom. You're not going to be able to keep that smell in. Tony, I have a confession. Can I can can I confess something? You already have deli meat sheets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a whole I have a whole closet full of gabagoo sheets. <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, I'm actually like, there's a part of me that is slightly anxious that you're going to stop hanging out with me on Discord because you want me to start hanging out with people in person and you feel like in, unless you like go cold turkey or cold cuts with me then then i'm never gonna like stop with the remote hangout sessions no i wouldn't do that i do want you to move out of thunder bay though so you would hang out with me uh, with the gabagoo sheets if it was over discord well i wouldn't have to smell them <laughs> okay good thing discord doesn't have olfactory features yeah Someone walks into your house for the first time after a nice date. You've taken them out for dinner, had some good conversation, maybe go for dessert somewhere else after. You go back to your place, and the first thing they say is, "What's that smell?" I know you'd have to keep the you'd have to keep the your bedroom at like refrigerator temperatures. Even still, after a charcuterie night, I open my fridge and all you smell is meat. Cold meat doesn't really have a smell. It sure does. What? Yeah. What is with the word charcuterie? When the fuck did that become the default word for platter of meat and cheese? Well, actually, charcuterie is, I think, the French word for like sliced cured meats. Did you hear that from your friend who is the sommelier? No, but <laughs> he would tell me that charcuterie is not cheese. It's actually charcuterie and cheese. Charcuterie is just the meat part. It sounds like a pretentious, dirty word. Well, you're about to have pretentious, dirty sheets. <laughs> uh, what if I dated the heiress of Oscar Mayer? <laughs> I feel like she'd be the last person you'd want to, because she'd be like, I've had enough of this smell in my life. <laughs> you want to date someone who has never smelled deli meat before. And she's like, oh, what is that smell? Yeah. And you're like, hey, you think that's nice? Come to the bedroom and you're going to go to whiff. Oh, so you're saying I need to date a reformed vegan. Yeah, like someone from another culture who's never even seen cured meat before. Oh. And then you bring them in and they're like, oh, what is this? 
Oh, and then if she is like a like a, a lapsed vegan, then that could be my ticket into seeming like a bad boy. Because not only am I a meat eater, but I have meat sheets. You're a meat sleeper. <laughs> this is so stupid. I love Thank it. Thank you. <laughs> you know that's a compliment. I do. I say that as a compliment every time. All right. Yeah, I'll do it. This sounds fun. <laughs> Amazing. I'm glad you will. Because there is a shipment of Gabagool on its way. <laughs> Do they sell like mattress size uh, pieces of... Uh, there was a specific kind of bread I was trying to think of, but I couldn't think of it. Oh, ciabatta, ciabatta buns. Mattress size pieces of ciabatta bun. Because yeah, then I could probably do something. Oh, I see what you're getting at. Yeah. You could maybe have like uh, a second blanket. Maybe. A second blanket? Yeah. yeah. Like make a sandwich. Yeah. Do the duvet cover... Do you have one? Not as good as the fucking meat sheets. Nobody expects that. <laughs> um, huh. I can't think of any. You get to be 100% able-bodied, but you get to be 100% able-bodied, but you have to join Scientology. You get to be 100% able-bodied, but you can only date Trump supporters. You get to be 100% able-bodied, but you get, you get to be 100% able-bodied, but you have to make one person cry every six months. Damn. The same person? <laughs> no. Just a random person? Or someone I know? Uh, sorry, a perfect stranger. You have to make a perfect stranger cry every six months. I think that would be harder. Because <laughs> at least with someone I know, I kind of would know what I could say to them to make them cry. <laughs> but with a stranger, I would just have to like... Start hurling insults and <laughs> yeah. hope that one of them affects them. Yeah. Oh, how about this? Like a really specific one. You get to be 100% able-bodied, but you have to at least once every six months uh, say a joke so funny that a person spits out their drink. I don't know which one is harder. Yeah. Actually, maybe that one would be easier because I could probably eventually figure out a joke that works. Like, I could figure out the formula for a good joke that does me a good spit take and then just bust it out once every six months. Because I feel like people are more likely to laugh than they in front of a perfect stranger than they are to cry. Right, that's true. And I also, you know, not to brag, but I make more people laugh than I do cry. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> not to brag. <laughs> 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 that's something you that's what's something you could put on your resume eh? <laughs> i think what would happen is you'd have to become a professional comic just to increase your odds of fulfilling your able-bodied quota right that's true if i just became a comic okay does it work like this if i get two spit takes in a month am i good for a year or do i have to space them out oh that's interesting yeah i would say they're cumulative Okay, in that case, it would be a lot easier. First of all, I would just keep all my friends with CP in my life. <laughs> that's a surefire way. Yeah. I just spit touch with you with my eyes closed. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, you do it accidentally all the time. I'd like to say it's on purpose. But it's an unfair advantage with CP. Okay, how about this? No, no, it's an advantage, but it's not unfair. No, it is an unfair advantage no, because no, no. no, because our 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 CP sips are slow 
And then like we're like we're like three hundred percent more likely to spit. Yeah, that's just cold strategy. <laughs> Do you know how like bad at you I would be if I thought you were only hanging out with me because I occasionally laugh hard enough to spit my drink out? I will say there is a significant percentage of the reason I enjoy your company that is <laughs> your life. Like, I love making you laugh. You have a <laughs> contagious laugh. And you're generous with laughter. And our senses of humor match well. So we make each other laugh quite a bit. If that yeah. wasn't the case, I wouldn't hang out with you as much. I, I imagine. Oh, no, that would be devastating if I had to just stop laughing at you, even if I thought you were being funny. Oh, that would, that would hurt both of us. <laughs> yeah, like... After like a month, you'd have to be like, you know what, dude, this isn't really working out. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd be funnier around you. Yes. <laughs> I don't like who I am around you. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, that'd be a good wheel breakers too. You get to be 100% able-bodied, but no one laughs around you. I wouldn't take it immediately, no. <laughs> yeah. Immediately. Yeah, that would be funny. such a depressing life. Oh my god, yeah. I would just have to be like some serious dude bro influencer guy. Ugh. Ugh. Yeah, you'd have to ally yourself with like typically unfunny people. Yeah. Yeah. Or the worst would be like every time you get a laugh, you know it's a fake laugh. <laughs> oh. Like, oh my god, you'd go insane so quickly. Yeah. When I get fake laughs at work, I'm like, I don't, this, none of this feels right. This is wrong. It feels gross. Yeah. Like, what is this? I'd rather you say, oh, nice try. Yeah. That's like one of the worst, one of the worst aspects of professional life is that so much of the exchanges, like, uh, like even when they are meant to be more authentic or, you know, off, offline, so to speak, they often feel quite forced because they are forced. Yeah, they are forced. I'm just thinking of that because of the office. Oh, I should say too that um, I follow this uh, Canadian podcast called Michael and Us. Uh, it's these two Toronto-based uh, uh, journalists, and I, I think they both write for Jacobin. But but anyway, they review movies uh, from a political lens. And one of their latest episodes was about Ricky Gervais. So I might have pulled a few ideas from their podcast in our discussion today. I just wanted to do that as a cover my ass exercise. Yeah, but anyway, my, Michael and us is a brilliant podcast. A really smart, insightful, funny, funny guys. They approach politics from a vantage that even I can sort of digest as a STEM student who, you know, before five years ago didn't really care about politics. Anyway, yeah, should we wrap it up there, uh, Rain Meta? Should we end it with some karaoke? Oh, Tony, you're gonna make me sing again. I'm not gonna make you do anything. No, no, let's let's end with karaoke. <laughs> is this what the listeners want? Good lord. <laughs> Probably not. This is what I want. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you guys. You lasted 80 minutes or whatever it is. You can handle five more. Another episode inside the Benjamin. The ca- the counterwalling is key. No. Doesn't anybody ever know? 
doesn't any Tony ever know? Can the world just away? Subway. I, the Jamie Sheets, a subway. Subway. Doesn't N-A, 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 N-A. Don't, we gotta cut that. You gotta cut it. I'm not killing it at all. So, so, so uncomfortable. Leaving it in. I just wanted to let you do that. I'm so excited. I feel like you're slowly coming out of your musical show. Oh, no. I'm loving it. I'm here for it. I fully support it. Just like Origami Masters. Let's go. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. The world's a subway.